Welcome to the Restless Midlifer podcast, helping you get life back on your terms and recapture that spirit of adventure. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Restless Midlifer. And I'm delighted in this bonus interview episode to be joined by um, coach and facilitator and author Andrew Scott, who is the author of the book Shifting Stories. And for those of you who listened for a long time, you know that whilst I like to talk about practical, tactical things we can do uh, to shift our 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 focus and our efforts to improve in terms of getting our head back from stress, improving our health and, and sort of setting goals to, to shift the direction of travel of our life. I am particularly fascinated with the, the narratives that we, we play through in our mind, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, about the world around us, about others and about how the world should be. And uh, Andrew is just somebody, I haven't read his book, but I wanted to really get on and, and, and dive into picking his brains about this because his work um, you can introduce yourself very shortly, Andrew. I won't waffle on too much longer, but his work is particularly focused around this idea of those stories and the narratives and how we can shift them. So, hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yes, how about you, David? I'm great, thank you, and I'm delighted to have you on. It's been uh, it's been um, something I've been looking forward to for a while now, just to, to pick your brains. Do you want to just introduce yourself in terms of your your, your background, who you are, your your work focus, etc., and then we'll we'll dive right in. Yes, I'm Andrew Scott. I've been a, a freelance coach and facilitator and previously, I suppose, trainer for 35 odd years now, working with a range of organisations, uh, mainly initially in financial services. Um, after the crash, that wasn't such a good marketplace for me. And uh, I've been working substantially with universities since then. So my major client base now is universities and has been probably for a couple of decades. Um, and working with individuals and teams and whole organisational groupings on a range of issues to do with development and leadership. Yeah, cool, great. And I think I, as we were saying off record that our paths may well have crossed, I think, through uh, work with a particular university in the past. So it's uh, it's funny how small world it can be, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah. So uh, obviously in terms of this, one of the the, the, the focuses that you have is the this idea of shifting stories, which is the title of your book. And I will put links into show notes and what have you for, for anybody who wants to dive into that. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that approach and just give us the background and philosophy of it before we start diving into tactical mm. aspects to it? Sure, sure. So, so it, the book came about because I was coaching um, an educational psychologist actually at the university and halfway through a series of coaching sessions, said, oh, Andrew, how long have you studied narrative therapy? And I swallowed once or twice and then had to admit, I've never heard of narrative therapy. And she said, oh, that's really funny because the way you work really reminds me of this body of work by a guy called Michael White. So um, being an academic, she gave me a, a reading list. So I went away and read that. And it was, it was really interesting. And so when we next met, I said, oh, I can see why my work reminded you of, of this narrative therapy work. But actually... I think I'm doing something a bit different. I'm not least I'm coming from a different place philosophically. And so that's that's interesting. You know, maybe you should write a book about it. And because I'm a sort of a biddable kind of chap, I got on and wrote a book. I mean, it took me another six years, you know, five years of procrastination and a year of hard slog. This is yeah. the way of these things. And that's how the book came about. But it was really built not from a theoretical base, from but from practice, working with people who are trying to change something about themselves about their situation, about a relationship. And I, I just delivered, a, a developed a methodology that seemed to be helpful to people. And that's what I sort of codified in the book to some extent. But it, it was a, a book built on practice rather than um, from any grand theoretical base. You know, sort of a backfill to theory and the philosophy later almost in yeah. the way one does, you know. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally get that in terms of you know when you when you're working in the thick of it, working with people, you adapt and collect and and find out what works and and, and what have you. So, I, I love that idea of it being born out of the practical experience. But then, as you said, the the book helped you codify it. So, does that did that kind of the process of writing the book help you? I don't know, articulate the thinking behind it and pull it together for for yourself as much as you know the reader. No, absolutely it did. And I, I was lucky to work with a really good editor who was very rigorous about making sure it made sense and was comprehensible. And, and the book's much better for his work. So I owe him a, a real debt of gratitude. Um, a chap called Andrew Derrington, um, really, he used to write the FT and stuff as well as being a senior academic himself and um, really, really good guy. Um, anyway, yes, to answer your question, yes, it, it really did help me think, well, what, what is that I do and how do I go? about it and and also having read the work by Michael White and others on narrative therapy what can I nick from there as well you know like any uh, trainer I'm, I'm a real um, magpie I'll, I'll take anything bright and sparkly from anything you know and plagiarize like mad and I try and give credit where it's due but and then incorporate it into what I'm doing and, and it takes on its own flavor anyway that way yeah. so yeah so, th- so there's you know people see bits of all these different influences in there I'm sure yeah Excellent. And just to, just to sort of clarify before we dive into um, the work and the, the model that you the, that you particularly work with, you you mentioned that obviously Michael White's work around narrative therapy and that yours was coming from a different sort of basis. What what what? How would you differentiate? Just so we can get a, an idea of that before we start diving. Mm. Well, at the most fundamental level, I suppose Michael White comes from a sort of postmodern perspective that suggests that there's no such thing as reality. It's all our interpretation. That's all there is. Um, and that we create reality as we go, as it were, what we've got passes for reality. And I don't buy that. I do believe in objective reality. I believe that um, I believe it's actually quite impoverishing to have a philosophy that says you can't legitimately say that the Holocaust actually happened. And you can't legitimately say that the Holocaust was a bad thing, for example. But if you believe Michael White's philosophy, you can't say those. You can just say, in my opinion, because that's all there is. I don't believe that. I believe actually we can make objective truth claims about history and objective truth claims about moral judgment that, that, and that we're poor if we don't. So I'd say that's the big difference, is that philosophical base. Um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So in terms of it, we, you, you're working from that <clears throat> that um, objective reality, and uh, I guess I suppose the way I would look at it is from an operational reality. You know, well, what can I do with it? You know, I'm, I'm I'm where I am. How am I interpreting this? And what then? You know, is it impairing where I want to be, or what have you? And what operation? I suppose that's made from my policing background, thinking operationally, what's practical, tactical, all that kind of stuff. But how do I actually do something that that mm-hmm. that, that makes a difference? So, do you want to talk us through then, if we if we're kind of differentiated, which I think is really important to do, what how you've shaped that your own approach to this then, and and how you go about working with somebody? Mm. Well, just just to finish off on that philosophical point first, I think David, that whilst I do believe in objective reality. I think we need to be very careful in laying claim to know what it is because, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's one thing to believe it exists. It's quite enough to think I'm the arbiter of it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. I realise what we're dealing with is, is multiple subjectivities in terms of our interpretation of that reality. Um, but it's that multiplicity that is what intrigues me. So just to take the very simplest example, if I think of myself and my story of myself, when I'm at my very best and firing all cylinders, everything's going well, 
my story is pretty positive and I'm okay and I'm, I know what I'm doing. I'm competent. I'm professional, da-da-da, yeah. But those moments when you wake in three in the morning and it's all going to hell in a handcart and you're full of self my story about myself is very different. Mm. And the headline for that story is, one day they're going to find out, you know? And, and so just about the same person, the same reality, if you like, I can have two quite different stories going. Mm. And what makes the difference is which one I pay attention to. Because if I live out of the I'm a fraud, I'm going to get found out. I'm not really competent to do this work. If I live out of that story, that leads to a whole lot of very different outcomes from if I live out of a story of actually I'm quite competent, I know how to do this, I can help people in useful ways. And so whichever one I engage with actually, in that sense, does help create the future. But I have a choice there. And so this work about shifting stories is really helping people to recognise that they have that choice and then to develop and choose to live more helpful stories than whatever negative one is holding them back. Yeah, I love that. So one of the things, you know, you talk about it, it will shape potentially the decisions you make, the actions you do. But I can also, you know, from experience with my own positive versus negative stories is there's a level of energy and expenditure, psychological and emotional strain trying to run against or just battle some of those stories as well, which one of my, you know, my key sort of key part of my background is working with people around positive emotional coping and stress, you know, and often they're, they're dealing with lots of demands, you know, tangible, real things in life, but it's often what's going on in here. The stories we run that really grind us down. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and, um, for me, it's it's helping people recognise that whatever it feels like, they do have a choice about that. And, and I draw there on um, Viktor Frankl's work, you know, the, the Holocaust survivor who writes very powerfully about his experiences in the camps. And he said, um, it became clear to me that they can take from us all of our freedoms, except the very last human freedom, the freedom to choose our response. And it's that, I really believe that, that we do have that freedom and, at a deep level to choose how we respond to and indeed how we interpret and how we move forward in any situation. Um, and that's, and the story way is a, in a sense, a sort of playful way of doing that. That's one of the reasons I like it. It's quite light, you know, treating things as a story is quite light. And I find that helps people create a bit of distance between themselves and the experience that they're considering or the set of experiences that they've, they've sort of totalized into a story. And so the first phase of um, the work I, I, invite people to explore if they, if they want to go down this path. I mean, it's, it's always a choice, isn't it? But if they want to, I call that loosening the grip because what I find is that people often have a grip on their stories and they hang on to them quite, yeah, they're quite comforting sometimes. They excuse us for bad behaviour in the past perhaps or they justify why we're not achieving what we think we could achieve or all of those things. But also the other way around is true. The stories have sort of grip on them in an interesting way in that they, they limit what they can think and what they can do and what they can be. And so this idea of loosening the grip is both ways. It's about the individual loosening his or her grip on the story, but also how do we get the story to loosen its grip on the individual? And what I found particularly here is that the first thing I learned is if you start to attack somebody's story, start to point out that it's not the whole truth or that it's only a partial interpretation, anything like that, they will defend it. Mm. So they actually grip it tighter. So that, that's the first thing. Don't, don't argue with someone's story, not, not first off, or, or indeed really ever. 
because it serves a purpose in their life and you'll only, make, I say, make them grip it tighter. And so, so I start the other way. I invite them to, to tell me their story. Mm. And I listen to it in great depth and detail and without any corrections, even if I can hear huge illogical leaps and fallacies they've constructed, I don't pick up on any of that. I just accept this is how they're seeing it. And very often that starts that process of feeling they can let go of it a bit because I'm not challenging it. It's been heard. It's been acknowledged. It's been accepted. But what I do do at that stage when they really explored it, we can explore it in a lot of depth and with some fun as well. You know, um, I then invite them to do a couple of things. One is to give the story a name. And there's something very powerful about naming things. Um, you know, we get this right back in, in the earliest literature we've got, you know, I've, well, for example, in, in the, um, the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, we find, you know, God names Adam and Eve, and he gives Adam and Eve the, the authority to name the creatures of the earth. And, so, and naming has this sense of power. And I think that's true in our day as well. You know, if kids want to bully someone in a playground, the first thing they'll do is say, what's your name then? And if you give up your name, you're surrendering power to them. You know that. You know, kids know this instinctively. So the act of naming something in some way gives us power over it in really interesting ways. So I invite people to name their story, and that's often very indicative. Yeah, I remember one woman who was locked in conflict with a colleague and I asked her to name her story after she told me how awful it was for quite a long while. And she said, oh, the princess and the ogre. I thought, wow, that's so indicative, isn't it? Um, and clearly there's a lot to go on there. You know, just the hyperbole of that was interesting. You know? um, but as well as naming it, which, which not only gives you power, but also creates sort of distance, I suppose, between you and the story. It's suddenly not me, it's, it's this thing out here. And if it's out here, I can look at it and examine it and maybe claim authorship of it rather than be a, just a character within it. You know, it's, it's a perspective shift there. But I also ask them to take a stand on it. I say, okay, so where do you stand in relationship to this story of the princess and the ogre? And if they say, oh, it's fine, I'm happy with it, then there's no work to be done. I'm not going to try and change a story that I want to change. They say, well, it's a bundle of crap, actually, Andrew. You know? I say, okay, well, do you want to explore that a bit more then? And that, that gives me permission to start to work with them on it, but also gives themselves permission to think it need not be like this in quite an interesting way. Yeah. So that's that first phase sort of um, loosening the grip. Those sort of some of the, the landmarks of that bit of the journey. Yeah, I love that. And I, lo I love the idea of, you know, you're introducing this idea as th that it can be playful as well, because one of the things that I think we can, it, we we are our story almost until we start to recognise it. We, you know, it, it's our identity, we embody it. And I think that idea that actually there is that distance and that's often, that's often a technique that's used in lots of different areas, you know, a therapeutic technique of label it, the emotion or the thought, not you, because we, we, we very tend have a powerful tendency to, to become or to identify with those things, particularly if they're a coherent narrative, it might not, you know, might have a, those logical fallacies in there, but it's powerful. So just kind of step one step before that, is that the idea of how we get somebody to just, recognize there is even a story in the first place mm, because mm. this is the thing when we're talking about and i know it's something i've wrestled with and i still catch my stories in new disguises new and ever creative disguises over the years you know you think you've nailed that one but then it kind of it's just dressed up in somebody else and, and appears as a different thing later and i think it's always being on your guard and i don't mean that in a negative i think we're always a work in progress but how how do we is that how we start to tune into the the fact that there are even stories in the first place mm. It's really interesting. How do we do that? Yeah, yeah. And um, 
And I do tend to use that example of myself having two different stories about myself, both of which I can easily believe. Yeah. And I also explain a little bit about how we then, once we latch on to anything, almost any instant will start a story in our head. You know, if I'm walking down a corridor and somebody walks past and goes, oh, instantly I'll start a story running. Yeah. But interestingly, the story will depend on the context. If it's someone I like and value, I'll probably think, oh, they're having a bad day. I might check in on them later. Whereas this one I don't like, I think typical. I knew they hated me. Yeah. And so the very same item of behavior can spark two quite different stories. And just noticing that that truth helps people start to think, okay, there's there is something to play with here. You know, we start to look at that. And I also tend to tell people a little bit about how we then create the story based on you know whatever started it, particularly about confirmation bias, which is that tendency we all have, we can't help it of noticing stuff that confirms what we already think and discounting stuff that doesn't or disconfirms it, or even interpreting stuff that might be contrary in a way that's consistent with what we already believe. So if I've decided my boss is horrible and evil and my boss is nice to me one day, I'll probably think, oh, that's really Machiavellian. What's she up to now trying to get around me? Rather than accept actually she might be nice some days and a bit off other days, like most human beings, you know. But my story is so strong, I'll interpret the behaviour in, in line with the story. So confirmation bias is a big part of this. And again, helping people recognise that and start to recognise that maybe, just maybe, there are other possible explanations for things and that exploring that might be fruitful. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you talk about having that playful approach and you 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 mentioned about naming it, naming the story, and you used early on in your example, actually, for yourself about giving it the headline is, and I, that, that jumped out at me because I think that can actually bring a bit of a smile to your face if you start to think about it as a headline, you know, because we all know how corny sometimes these headlines can be. If we can do that, that can be a great way to sort of almost bring that playfulness in. And I think one of the things that I particularly... Um, like to when I'm working with somebody around, say, for the health and trying to sort of sh- whether it's shift a few pounds, you know, somebody's in that midlife place and feels like they've let things go and they're just not feeling comfortable in their own skin. That's quite a common thing. And on the journey back, reclaiming some of the healthy habits, what often surfaces are the stories like, oh, I'm too old now, I kind of, you know, it's too late for me, oh, my metabolism's blah, 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 you know, all of these things. And those stories can surface which then can interfere with the motivation to actually do things or introduce the habits. A quick update. The Restless Midlifer Academy is now open, and I'm also running a series of six-week Reshape Accelerator programs aimed at getting your health, weight, and self-confidence back on track. Head over to restlessmidlifer.com to check out the programs. So any thoughts on that? Because I think that this is how, how, how can we start to use them practically to get them to start to play mm. with new stories or challenge them? That's right. Well, well, so just a couple of things spring to mind. One is in, in terms of just um, that sense of um, playfulness. There's a great guy in America called C.W. Metcalf who does wonderful work around humour, risk and change and stuff like that. And he, he has a wonderful bit in one of his um, presentations where he draws a sort of a more or less a circle on a flip chart. And then he puts arrows from the outside of it pointing outwards and say, look, this is the universe and it's expanding in all directions. I don't know how they know this, but they do and I'll trust them, okay. And then he puts a little X somewhere in the middle and he says, and here is a point. It's the centre of the universe. He says, again, nobody knows where it is, but there must be a point that is the centre of the universe. And then he puts another X 
on the flip chart, a bit away from it, and says, and this is you. And when you confuse the two, you've lost the plot. And it's such a beautiful way of pointing out that we do tend to think everything's about us. Mm. And that's the interpretive lens we place on things. Mm. You know, if somebody cuts into me in front of the in front of me in the traffic, I think, how could they do that to me? They're not doing it to me. They're trying to get somewhere. They're in a hurry, but whatever, it, you know, but I'll take it personally. And, and so, again, just help people recognise some of these dynamics that we all go through and that sometimes stuff happens and it's not personal. And it doesn't mean your boss hates you or that your partner hates you. You know, you're just uh, not even noticed in their consideration at that moment. They're doing something else. It just happens to be something you didn't like. You know? So I, th- I think that's quite helpful, that sort of perspective. And I love humour, going back to the playfulness point, because the way humour works often is that radical shift of perspective illustrated by that Metcalf story. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I'm not the centre of the universe. You know, and we laugh because we get we catch ourselves doing it. You know. But to move on to the other thing you were saying about how do we then move on and discover new, more helpful stories, this is right at the heart of, of the work, isn't it, to, to do that? And there's a few things I've found very helpful here. One is to invite people to consider whether they can think of any exceptions to the story. Any times when things didn't happen quite the way the story would have predicted. So, you know, going back to my boss example, you know, that day the boss came in and was nice. Yeah, she might have been being evil and Machiavellian. Or conceivably, she was being authentic. What's that tell us? What new possibilities does that open up? Um, and okay, sometimes she's horrible, sometimes she's nice. Well, that's a different story from she's always evil. And just and, and then that opens up the possibility of can I start to predict when she's nice or helpful? Is there anything I'm doing that's different when that happened? You know, and so, so you start to construct a news story about that. Or actually, do you know what? It's Mondays she's a bitch. She always had bad weekends. <laughs> By Thursday, she's quite human again. You know, people start to notice different stuff, you know, or whatever it is. So, so inviting people to explore the exceptions to their stories is really, really helpful. And another thing that I like to get them to think about at this sort of phase, and one can do this with oneself, as I'm talking about doing it with someone else because that's most of my work, but mm. I do it to myself as well, believe me. <laughs> yeah. um, but another thing is, is what I call the implicit positive values. So if we're not happy with a story, it's because there's something that isn't right for us in it. There's something that, uh, and that's normally at the level of value. There's something about our values being contravened. And it may feel very negative, but if you help people tease up, well, what's the positive of that? What is the positive value that's not being honoured here? What would that be like in this context? And people can start to think about, okay, so, you know, I'm a lazy or what's it, but actually the positive value in that is I do value getting stuff done or I wouldn't be cross at being lazy or, I do, you know, and so on. So, um, so if we identify exceptions, yeah, actually, the other day I did get out of bed and go for a run. I know it was only once out of the 20 times I meant to, but I did do it. That's an exception, yeah? And the implicit positive value is, I felt great, I felt really, that's what I want to be like, okay. And from those, I invite people to start to think about, okay, so what's this new story of yourself as you'd like to be and as you sometimes are already? Because my my thesis is always that there's a bit of the new story already in existence. It's at least latent. Um, And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to discover that. So I talk about discovering a new story, not making one up. We're not trying to fantasise here about how things could be. We're trying to discover how actually they just occasionally are and how can we grow that? Or they could be realistically, not fantasy, you know, with 
And how can we grow that? So, um, so that's the second phase, really, is really helping people to discover these more helpful stories. And a more helpful story typically includes quite a lot of what's gone before in the unhelpful story, but it has more to it as well. It recognises that's not the totality of our experience. There's other stuff we've been discounting because of confirmation bias or interpreting in a malign way because of the confirmation bias or whatever it is. You know? And we're often, if it's our own story, we're often our own worst critics. Yeah. So that cuts in as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I think that idea that if we're, we're sh- well, it's the title of the book, isn't it? The shifting of the stories is the movement rather than sort of mm-hmm. saying, well, I'm here, this is where I want to be. And that to me right now, that other story is a complete fantasy. It's a, it's something I just feel is so unachievable. So those approaches, I love that because it's kind of saying, right, okay, so what have we got here? How could it be? Where might it be different? So we're expanding the territory a bit. You're looking at the values thing I love as well because you're kind of reframing what could be, especially if you work, you know, we're working with somebody who's particularly hard on themselves. Mm. We're, the tendency is to be very cruel when we when we feel like we haven't done something we failed to live up to, et cetera. But if we can just shift that value perspective, that that's an amazing, amazingly positive, powerful way of looking at the same thing, really. Yeah, yeah I love that. And then finding the, the truth so there are shifts that way. Yeah, I, I love that. So any sort of any other thoughts in terms of how the, you move things forward? Mm. Well, one of the things I'm interested in, when people are sort of putting themselves down, they'll often compare themselves with someone else. And it's interesting who they choose, of course. They choose someone who's excellent in the one specific thing that they're interested in. So, you know, if I think about my piano player, I'm an adult learner of the piano, okay? And I think, yeah, but I'm nothing like as good as Rachmaninoff, you know? Or if they think about my tennis playing, I think, I'm nowhere near Federer's standard, you know, or whatever it is. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? But I often tell this to clients, and I, I joke, but do you know what? I'm probably a better tennis player than Rachmaninoff and a better pianist than Federer. And, you know, and they get the point, yeah, that we set up these comparisons in a very one-dimensional way, and it's just not a helpful thing to do. And if we can laugh at ourselves for doing so, that's where the humour comes in. That's much more helpful. And just recognise the game we're playing with ourselves to make ourselves feel bad. And we don't have to play that game. We can choose to, but we just don't have to. We play a different game and make ourselves feel good. That might be more helpful, you know? Shifting the pressure off as well, you know, that that strain, because uh, working with some very driven people who that's what's got them to where they are, you know, a lot of that drive, that self-flagellation, even, you know, the the driving stories, but then realising actually there's a point where this is starting to burn me out and and do more harm than good, or it's really not getting to where I want to be. So that idea of shifting, it's an empowering way to do that, isn't it? To, to move in that direction. And I love the idea of playfulness and humour as well, because I think most of us get that. You know, we may not be in a great place when we start, but playfulness is often an antidote to that, isn't it? You know, moving forward. I love that. Uh, and it also takes me out of the role of being someone who's telling them what to do. Yeah. I'm kidding around with them rather than instructing them. They'll relate to me better, typically. Um, and, and that seems to work quite well in, in this kind of context. Um yeah and it's the essence of coaching isn't it really that idea that you know you have that you have the answers within you it's just that idea of how can we surface them unearth them and you know whether we're doing it with a coach or we're we're self-coaching which is something that I, I talk about with listeners is what can you take away what things can you take away to just play with you know over the mm. next few days you've listened to this interview what what stories may have just occurred to you now how can you do that shifting process 
rather than expecting the all or nothing as I talk about the full, you know, the full yeah. dramatic shift to the the new fantasy story. It's how do we shift that, you know? Mm. Uh, and that really, that's a very nice segue into the, the third phase of the process as I sort of have conceptualized it now. And that's about um, really enriching the plot of the new story. Because old stories die hard, you know. Yeah. We may we may shift the story a bit, and then something happens that's just in line with the old story. Say, oh, my God, I knew it. You know, it was always that was always the truth, really. You know, and we just revert. And and so we've got to make the new story strong enough to stand up to that onslaught. And again, there's just a few things that are really helpful here. Um, one is, I often ask people who won't be surprised by this new story. And that's really helpful because if they can identify someone in their life who won't be surprised by the new story, that's another way of evidencing that it's already latent, it's already at least partially true, or the person would be surprised. So it's a great question. And people can normally answer it. They normally say, oh, yeah, well, actually, so-and-so wouldn't be because they, they see that bit of me. Ah, oh, that bit of you, it exists, you know. <laughs> it, ex it exists in that context. Can it exist in this context, for example? You know, they see that at home and they didn't see it at work. Well, what can we do about that, you know, um, or vice versa? You know, my kids find it amazing I have a job that involves listening to people. They see no evidence of that at home, you know. <laughs> so that's the way of it sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, so that's one really useful question is that. Another one is, is a bit more of a process, but to get them to really consider whether they can reinterpret any of the old story in light of the new so to take the example of the boss who was perceived to be evil and wicked, once we started to say, actually, on occasions, she's not, let's retrofit that to some of the other stuff and see if all the evidence we've collected need be interpreted the way we've interpreted it, or whether some of it at least is capable of a more benign interpretation. And that's often very powerful, particularly in the relationships where, where the story is between two people. People often find it a huge relief to realise that actually she hasn't done all this out of hate for me for 20 years. You know, I've been a victim of friendly fire, as it were, you know, or whatever it is, whatever. You know. um, that can actually really, really uh, detoxify things very, very significantly sometimes. So that's always worth exploring. And then and the other thing, of course, is, okay, well, what's the news story predict you, your behaviour will be like from here on in? Let's make you sure you do some of that, you know. If actually it means you smile at her when she walks in the office, you do that. Just see what happens, you know? And um, and then also catch it, record it. So, so you know, actually make, you know, do some reflective writing around this, celebrate successes, all of that stuff we use to reinforce change. Really, really valuable in this context. And that's, that gives us a chance for the new story to grow in strength, to become the dominant narrative. And I encourage people to notice when they're tempted to switch from one to the other, what, what what triggers that? What makes you want to go to the old story? What might help you recognise as a choice point? And do I want to go there? Do I really want to go there? Or could I choose to go somewhere else and inhabit the new story and live out of that? Um, so stuff like that really, really helps people turn it into reality, actually, and bring about great change in a quite a fun way. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the reflective practice as well. Mm. Um, and that idea of just capturing that and celebrating. I mean, that's a, that is a powerful part of embedding new habits as well. And this is what we're talking about, habitual thinking, you know, trying to Absolutely. shift that. 
but also maybe spotting the circumstances when it becomes, you know, when you're seduced into the old story and what are the circumstances there as well as a great one. One of the, I love that idea of, you know, who wouldn't be surprised by the behaviour? And I think that's an interesting one because I, I think we can sometimes get so absorbed in the people around us and there's an element of complacency, I guess, whether it's people we work with, family, friends, and actually find, thinking that that person might be that person who's just a little bit outside the network mm-hmm. that has and does see you differently from the day to day and perhaps that picking that might take a little bit of thought but that could be so powerful because you're right it proves there's an existing story there that that is positive in that sense so i love i love that brilliant well i'm conscious that i don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add to it but uh, i'm conscious obviously of time and i'm really appreciative of the fact that you spent the time here because this is this is just oh, i love this and i'm fascinated with it and then how can we play with these stories um and i think there's some great tips and ideas on how to get started and then how to start to shape and shift and then sort as you say sort of reinforce the stories going forward and just for the listeners i, I do recommend uh, andrew's book shifting stories it's a great book as well a, a really really great written some great case studies and then really down to earth and, and and practical and gettable as well so thank you for that but is there anything else that you wanted to add or um you know before we we kind of part ways no, no, it's, it's been a real pleasure. I mean, you probably gather I love talking about this stuff. So it's been a great delight. And uh, and thanks for plugging the book as well, which, um, yeah, is um, always welcome. Yeah, uh, no problem. Uh, as I say, this is this is like I love talking about this stuff. I love the idea of habits and habit formation and making changes. But I realise, and this is the thing I've come to realise, that in my own life and obviously life of well, everybody, really, not just clients, but is the power of those narratives. And if we can just become aware of them and start to play with them, shift them, I love that playful attitude and approach to it. I think that's where the real power comes in making some significant lasting change. So for me, that's 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 a real positive approach, especially for restless midlifers who may have had a few years on the planet, some entrenched stories, you know, the ones that really could do with a bit of a, a playful approach just to shift them out of there. So thank you very much for your time. It's been brilliant. It's been a great pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you. And just for listeners, we'll put some links um, into show notes for the book and your work as well, Andrew, and um, and you know any other links that you want to share. And um, if they want to get in touch with you, contact details, that would be great. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll catch you on the other side. And uh, if there's any questions or feedback from any listeners, email me, dave at restlessmidlifer.com. Uh, drop me any questions in for Andrew. I'm sure I should be happy to field them in, in due course after this. But thank you very much for your time and take care. Watch out for those stories and get playful with them as well. Thank you very much. Was that what you needed? <laughs> yes, that was, oh, it's lovely. It's brilliant. Uh, to be fair, I could have, I could have gone on for, for ages. Well, me too. I had to keep stopping myself because I get enthusiastic, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's, to me, this is what brings it all to life, you know, and I, I try to sew it into the practical, tactical things because that's mm. where I think people can resonate. If they can just catch mm-hmm. a story, they can go, that's me, you know, or I do that and then we can yeah, shift. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So brilliant. brilliant. Thank you very much. Could I, um, just in terms of, I don't know if, I'll just double check, but if there's any links to work, contact, book, and a photograph of yourself, that would be really good. And a a bit of a bio. um, Yeah, I'll buzz that all through to you. That'd be brilliant. And then I can add it to the... um, to the uh, show notes and uh, I will send all links once we're once we're up and running with a date for publishing. Okay. So I'll send, send you a bio, a photo, links, and of course this recording. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, we we'll want the recording as well. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, brilliant. that's fantastic. Brilliant. Lovely. To, to... And it's just audio, isn't it? Sorry? 
It's just an audio podcast. Yes, it? it is. Yeah, I'll probably turn it into these audiograms. Have you seen them where there's a little pause with a sound wave on? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's fine. fine. Yeah, yeah. Good. It's just I, I, I realised I haven't done my makeup and my hair. <laughs> well, one of them things. <laughs> well, great to see you. Thank well, you. Thanks so much for inviting me, David. I really enjoyed it. It's been great. Thank you for listening. You will find all show notes, links and resources mentioned at restlessmidlifer.com. And why not spread the word? If you know a fellow Restless Midlifer, share the show and the links. And if you haven't already, subscribe to it in your podcast feed of choice. And one more thing, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you could rate it by visiting restlessmidlifer.com forward slash review. It would mean a lot. And I may even give you a shout out in return. And a quick final thanks to my production assistant, Karen North of North VA, and for the music, which is called Silver Star, by the awesome Logan Nicholson of Music for Makers. Check out musicformakers.com. Take care for now. And don't forget, you really can live a less stressful, much healthier and more meaningful midlife. Go re-adventure. <laughs>